Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hello, beautiful people. Right now, I am talking to the amazing author, Linda K. Klein. Uh, hi, Linda. <laughs> Hello. I'm delighted to be here talking with you. I am delighted to connect with you. Um, Right off the bat, I really thought it was important for Linda to explain to you guys that LGBTQ is welcome in this conversation. And I was like, how do we tell them? And she's like, they're just obviously welcome. So I'd like to expand on that for a second. Why are they obviously welcome into this conversation? I mean, we're talking about sexuality and religion, and this is a topic that I think is relevant to everyone, um, including people who were not raised religious because religion is such a massive part of our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we all we all are uh, human beings. And, you know, I would say most of us you know, that means being sexual in some way, shape or form, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Either sexual in terms of how we um, exist or how others perceive us. Um, You know, even if we are asexual ourselves, uh, we are often sexualized by others. Um, So this to me is a human conversation um, because, because we are sexual beings (laughs) and, and we are beings who, who live in a religious landscape. So, so this isn't, isn't a special conversation only for straight religious people. (laughs) Great. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is is a come one, come all. We all exist in this, you know, messiness, um, that is this intersection. I love that so much. And, um, Linda and I have both been on this journey where we were hyper-religious in the most, like, perfect way possible, checking all the boxes, being, you know, adhering to everything our leaders were saying, and went on a long journey of discovery. And, Linda, you've been talking to people for the past 12 years about purity culture and the effect that it's had on them. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Before, before the term purity culture was the term that we were using um, back when it was just, hey, you were raised with these teachings and so was I. And how is it impacting your life? You know, before it even really had a name. Yeah. Can you give a little backstory of how it really started the entire the movement that we were a part of? Yeah. I think one of the reasons it didn't have a name when I started doing these interviews, you know, 12 years ago, um, really 13 years ago at this point, you know, I I keep saying 12, but time just keeps ticking by, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, you know, one of the reasons it didn't have a name is because I um, and my peers and I were among the first to have come to age in this generation that was raised in the purity movement Mm -hmm. because the purity movement really didn't begin until the early 1990s. Now, to be sure, the purity teachings existed before this period, right? Um, Folks who grew up in the 80s in the evangelical church, um, you know, our grandparents, um, you know, many, many of us are going to find that language familiar. And if not that language, you know, the teaching that you are good or bad, a good girl or a bad girl, particularly if you're um, raised as a girl, 
based on your sexual life or other people more actually more accurately other people's perceptions of your sexual life mm-hmm. you know is a much larger um uh, uh long-standing reality um but what happened in the early 1990s that was different is that the white American evangelical Christian church took this cultural purity teaching and really developed a movement um, that very quickly became an industry uh, with a lot of financial uh, support that ended up trickling down from federal and state funds that were available for abstinence only before marriage messaging. Mm-hmm. So when I say industry, I'm talking about the, the sort of products that developed um, out of this purity movement. So, you know, we start to see these purity rings, we start to see purity pledges, we start to see purity curricula, you know, people wearing purity t-shirts and yeah. purity rallies. And, you know, there was a lot out there that was, um, that was really taking this concept and merging it with our capitalistic society, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and, and the, and the result of that is that I think a lot of people who were raised you know, in the, in the sort of um, intense, intense purity culture that developed, um, you know, folks who were raised particularly in the white American evangelical church were surrounded by these products, um, which really took this message up to a new level. I mean, the product that I often point to as really being illustrative of how intense it was for folks who were raised in this is um, the purity theme Bible. Right. When you have a Bible, where yeah. you have 60 pages in one in one case of non-biblical material all about the importance of your purity. Um, you know, it's really difficult not to merge your your perception of your salvation and your and other people's perception of your purity. So. So anyway, but, you know, the reality is, is that this movement be- became much bigger and the industry became much bigger than the community that created it. Um, you know, and we saw these rings and these curriculum, these teachings enter into um, other evangelicalisms. Um, so, uh, you know, um, evangelicalisms, are, I, I think of oftentimes as segregated by race. Um, Martin yeah. Luther King once said, the most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning because mm-hmm. we are so segregated racially. Um, you know, so you started to see these things in, in other, in, among people of color um, who are practicing different forms of evangelicalism, other Christianities, um, Catholic churches, et cetera, and embedded into public schools really throughout secular society. So there became this kind of interplay between the, um, the purity movement and, and society as a whole. Yeah, and then you also mention in the book that you that this culture is spreading worldwide or had spread worldwide because of mission trips and missionaries coming and spreading this messaging abroad. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, very very intentionally. Very intentionally. Right. And what is your what's the estimate that about I think you said five or six million people have been affected by this movement in America? Oh gosh, did I did I wager a guess? <laughs> I don't know. I, think I have, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, listen, twenty five percent of this country is um, uh, evangelical. Uh, is you know sort of a loose estimate that's been pretty steady it's over a the massive of, number. It's a huge yeah. number. It's a huge number, and um, and this is uh, unfortunately a very consistent teaching in evangelical churches. There are evangelical churches that don't teach this, but they are. Um, uh, tough to find. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, I've really been looking and, Same. and I write yeah. about, I write about the ones that I found in my book, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and there aren't many. Um, yeah, I'm always so, blown away cause I'm here in Los Angeles and I, I remember actually recently cause I've been kind of dipping my toe back into church, which has not been easy. And your book um, was so validating for me because every time I stepped in a church, my heart would start beating a mile a minute and I would get sweaty. And I kept thinking like, you know, I, I don't know. I just wasn't connecting my, the way my body was reacting to the way I was emotionally feeling. I was just like, oh, I'm just bored. Or I was making all these excuses for why I was so uncomfortable in that environment. And you talk about how they're actually beginning to diagnose like specific forms of PTSD that branched off from the purity movement in the evangelical church and how it's like deeply affected so many of us. 
Yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot of people describe what you talked about, where the church becomes a trigger for people Mm -hmm. and they go into a a church and they have these physical responses. Some people, you know, breaking down into tears and not being able to identify why, but just knowing every time they go into a church, it happens. Yeah. And, and this is, this is, um, you know, something that has come up often enough that it is a, I, I think a trend. Um, and, and yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned that certain people are sort of, um, identifying, uh, you know, I, I don't know that anyone is calling it PTSD mm-hmm. because, you know, that is a, a, a clinical term. Right. Um, but they but these experiences that mimic PTSD for sure, um, you know, people having, as you said, these physical reactions to church or in many cases to your sexuality, to a sexual experience, to a sexual thought, to mm. seeing your body, your own body in the mirror and perceiving it as sexual, right. um, you know, yeah. and, and, and sometimes that looks like, you know, other things. Sometimes that looks like nightmares. Sometimes that looks like anxiety that becomes anxiety attacks. Sometimes that looks like fear that, um, that can become almost paranoid in nature. <laughs> yeah. So I really, I want to get into your story. And then I also wanted to address more specifically some of those negative effects that it's had on people. But um, I also just wanted to, you know, address the fact that this is still happening. This is still pre- prevalence, like on my YouTube channel, the obsession in the ev- evangelical church is still sex, sex, sex. And so many people write me daily being like, how can I overcome this? Like, how do I know if I'm a good girl anymore because I'm having sex with my boyfriend? And all of these things are still coming up. And recently I went to a church in LA and it was very progressive. And I was like, oh, I feel good here. And the message was lovely and the pastor was lovely. And I was like, oh, this is something I could get behind. And at the very end, the pastor stood up for no reason at all. It like wasn't related to the message. And he had a worship team of like about six people. And I noticed five of them had wedding rings on. And then the lead singer didn't have a wedding ring on because I just observe things like that when I'm in church. And um, he stood up and was like, and just a reminder, stay sexually pure. And I saw her face drop because... I just felt like she was discluded from that and she was still, I don't know, it was still being pounded in, in this day and Mm -hmm. era. Like, I just can't believe that this messaging is still happening. So I just thought it was so important to talk to you to really like address for all of you guys listening that, you know, sexuality is so important. I think Linda, the way you resonate so deeply with me is that, you see like a holistic approach to your mind, body, spirituality, all of it being aligned and healthy with God, that you're not compartmentalizing or hiding pieces of yourself in order to celebrate your spirituality and to be a Christian. And Mm. I'm just tired of us having to compartmentalize, have our sex life here and God elsewhere, because I think that Mm. is a thing that's causing so many of us so much damage. Yeah. 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 I think you really hit it on the head and, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Even though I talk about the purity industry and movement as being something that isn't in existence right now, that's only because there isn't the same level of money, you know, pumping through it. Oh, interesting. But the, yeah. but the purity, the purity teachings, you know, are still very prevalent. Mm-hmm. You know, they predated the movement and they're post the movement. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, and so this is still a a massive part of many, many people's reality. And, uh, and, and I think you really are talking about something really important when you talk about the kind of divisions that it creates within an individual. Um, you know, and we start to think about parts of ourselves as good and parts of ourselves as bad. Um, you know, forgetting that, that in fact we are a whole being Mm -hmm. and that all of these things touch one another and are interwoven through one another and impact one another. And so when we suppress one and elevate another, um, you know, it it doesn't work that way. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. don't get to pick and choose what you suppress and what you elevate um, because we are 
we are whole. And um, so we end up suppressing more than we intended and elevating more than we intended in, um, in, in ways that can be uh, unintended and, and unhealthy. Yeah. And speaking of unhealthy, when you are comp- like compartmentalizing, you are not buying condoms because it feels like you're premeditating a sin that might occur. So there's also the health risks that a lot of Christians experience because they're trying not to have sex. So they're not taking the necessary precautions to make sure they're even safe when doing so. Mm. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think is really important that you're touching on there is this reality that these are lifelong effects, that when we teach young people to experience shame in association with their sexuality, um, and when I say shame, I'm not talking about shyness or bashfulness, I'm talking about um, feeling defined in your worthiness um, by your sexuality or your lack thereof? Are you pure or impure? Are you worthy or unworthy? Are you good wife material or lucky if you'll ever be loved? Are you, you know, when you're defining, when you're teaching people to define themselves or to, to expect others to define them and to feel that it's okay for others to define them as worthy or unworthy based on other people's ideas about their sexuality Right. You know, it has these lifelong effects. And I think sometimes when people teach the purity message, they think that, oh, we can teach this to people and then they will eventually figure out, <laughs> you know, that this isn't helpful. And, uh, and you know, when they get married, they'll magically have healthy sexual lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. all the suppression will suddenly drop away, et cetera. But actually these things stick with us for a really long time. And one of the ways that that um, that I see it show up in the people who I've been interviewing, um, you know, is what you talked about around um, people getting to a point where they are sexually experimenting, but they have so much shame around sexual experimentation um, that they never plan for it because to plan for it you know, feels like premeditating a sin, right? It's like premeditated murder as opposed to a murder of passion. It's premeditated sex versus a sex of passion, which Mm -hmm. somehow feels less bad, right? (laughs) Right. Um, So, so for, so a lot of people, you know, um, are very hesitant to, you know, buy a condom or get on birth control or do things to protect um, themselves from, uh, from diseases and from infections and from pregnancy um, because because their shame won't allow them to um, to to do those kinds of protective things. So this is one of those things that you know we we have this impression that people will just figure it out. And you know if they are you know going to engage in sex even after they've been told that it's a shameful, horrible thing, that they will somehow magically know how to do that in a safe, appropriate way. Mm-hmm. And on the contrary, you know, we've embedded so much shame into people that, um, that they're often too ashamed to do it in a safe way. They're too ashamed to approach somebody who they trust and say, um, I'm thinking about this and I want to talk it through with you. You know, is this, is this the right moment for me or not? I'm not sure. Um, you know, they're too ashamed to, um, to, you know, get the protections to make sure that, um, that they are physically healthy in the experience. Um, so it actually ends up creating, um, you know, a lower, a lower level of use of protective, um, of protection, which, which the statistics show. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And (laughs) I'm having flashbacks to so many, all the messages were just so horny in church. It was always like, the married young pastor that was like, it's going to be amazing when you have sex. And like you said, when you hear the stories afterwards, it doesn't add up. And I never shame anyone out of choosing purity, like as an autonomous choice. I support that. But absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But when you're doing it out of shame or because somebody told you so, it can lead to so much, you know, like you said, all of this stuff. Um, I also wanted to talk about, like, you're talking about how um, 
oftentimes it's not even your own sexuality that is being judged, like the real act of sex that you're doing, but how you're perceived within church. And a lot of that has to do with how quickly or slowly a woman's body is developing and how curvaceous she might be. Because in Pure, you talk about how you kept getting cast in the church plays as the Jezebel because you had like a booty and a figure. And, <laughs> uh, and then something occurred in your life that transitioned you to Mary. So I was hoping you could share that story a bit about modesty culture and how it had an effect on how you were developing as a woman. Hmm. Yeah, um, the thing that happened that you referenced is that I got really sick. Mm-hmm. Um, I got really sick. I had um, I have Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, it was undiagnosed for a long time, um, in and created a lot of destruction in my life and its lack of diagnosis, which is related to all of these things as well. So, yeah, folks I'm who are sorry curious about that, that, you know, check yeah. out the book. Yeah. <laughs> But um, but the but ultimately the result was that I had three um, major surgeries in a row, um, and then I had about a year long period where I was healing in preparation for a fourth major surgery, and I over the course of the first three major surgeries in which I had my entire large intestine removed and as much of the small intestine as they could take out while it's for for it to still function. Wow. Um, so I was quite quite ill. You know, I lost forty pounds. And I was really thin and I was really weak, you know, and that booty that you referenced, mm-hmm. you know, it, was, it was nowhere to be found. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, uh, and, I was, and I was just, you know, um, not able to leave the house more than a few times a week. Um, going to church was one of the few times that I left the house. Um, and, and I noticed that when this happened, all of a sudden the – Church's community, the church community's reaction to me abruptly changed. You know, before I had gotten sick, I was constantly being pulled aside and talked to about being a stumbling block, um, you know, a term that is common, of course, in this culture, um, usually used to, to refer to girls and women who are um, uh, sexual sexual stumbling blocks to men and boys. They're going to make men and boys think about sexuality, masturbate, whatever it is. Yeah, it makes my blood boil. <laughs> Yeah, because mm-hmm. of how they walk or how they talk or how they dress, which is problematic, of course, because we're blaming one gender for the thoughts and feelings of another gender. Yeah, women um, are... Which is a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah, we are supposed to be guarding men's thoughts <laughs> mm-hmm. as women. Yes. That's our responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Which, of course, has um, play that forward and, and it becomes very dangerous, particularly in rape cases, mm-hmm. etc. But, um, but anyway, so, so, you know, before I got sick, I was, I was the one who was always being pulled aside and talked to about being a stumbling block. And, um, and after I got sick and being cast as the Jezebel or the, you know, the demon or whatever it was. Right. And by the way, um, you were not having sex at this time. No. And you weren't dressing super provocative and coming on to all the boys. This is just like, you have a body that the men in church are noticing. So you're a stumbling block. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I went to public school. Um, so I dressed, I dressed, um, I would say, you know, like a, like a normal public school student. Right. Um, whereas I will say some of my peers who are homeschooled, you know, were wearing floor length dresses and things like that. I wasn't that, you know, mm-hmm. um, I wasn't wearing floor length dresses every day, but I was dressing, you know, pretty, pretty main pretty middle of the road. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, and I was also, you know, yeah, I, I, I had only ever kissed somebody. Um, so I was certainly not having sex, Mm -hmm. but, um, but anyway, and, uh, and then when I, when I got sick, you know, I suddenly started to be treated really differently. You know, people would, I would be wearing the same clothes that I wore before. Of course it fit me differently now because I was so much thinner Mm. Um, and I would be pulled aside and told, oh my gosh, you look so beautiful. You know, you look so healthy and you look so, so I'm so, so glad you're here. You look so great. And, and I just remember being struck even then by, oh my gosh, what has changed about me that all of a sudden I went from being a stumbling block to being, you know, beautiful. And, um, and, and then, and then I got cast one day as Mary, (laughs) <laughs> in the live nativity scene and I was like 
first of all, I was too weak to play Mary. Mary had to hold a real little baby. I was way too weak to hold a real baby for several hours while people walked through the live nativity scene. So I was too weak to even do it. Wow. But I remember in that moment thinking to myself, I am finally, I'm finally the woman that they wanted me to be, you know, I'm finally her. And, but I had to trade in my vitality, my energy, my body, (laughs) Mm. you know, I had to trade in all of these things that I think, you know, made me feel dangerous in their eyes. Um, but that made me, me, you know, I, I am charismatic. I, I do talk to everybody, including the boys, (laughs) you know, I do crack jokes with everybody, including the boys, which some people perceive as, as flirtatious. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't wear floor length skirts because running in a floor length skirt, you know, is scratchy and uncomfortable. Right. (laughs) But, you know, but, you know, but because I, you know, because I now had a different, um, uh, I was different in my body and I was different in my self presentation. I now suddenly was acceptable. And one of the things that really struck me was all these years I'd been told that a good woman was demure Mm -hmm. and pure and, um, wasn't too loud (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, um, supported, supported leadership, which of course is all male, um, without ever getting in the way of it. And, um, for me to be that person, I had to not be me. Yeah. I had to be too sick to be me. God, and that yeah. was the moment, that was the moment that I was like, oh, okay, I'm never going to be who you all want me to be here. Um, and, and that's, okay. Cause I actually don't, I actually don't want to be the person that it takes for me to be acceptable. Well, this brings me to, I'm going to mess up this word, compliment and complementarianism. Yeah. Complementarianism. <laughs> complementarianism. Yes. Yeah. That is a, a massive part of church culture, hugely in part to wives submit to your husband's Bible verse and, um, you know, women being quiet at church, it's all biblically based, but, um, how does that play out in church? What does that look like? The male and female dynamic that we're supposed to be residing in. Right. So complementarianism is the, um, most, most, um, most common gender teaching in the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the teaching that men and women are equal in God's eyes um, which is a good start because, you know, historic, <laughs> historically, that wasn't always the teaching, right? Oh, fair, yeah. Um, <laughs> progress. So, right, progress. <laughs> at least at least we've got, you know, God thinks of you as equal. But, here's the big but, mm-hmm. right? Um, but men are expect men are created, not expected, men are created. Men are these manly, masculine men who must always be the leader, particularly in the church and the home. Yeah. And women are hyper, hyper feminine supporters, um, of those masculine leaders. And so long as people, you know, fulfill their gender expectation or more how it's talked about is like fulfill their, how they were created as a gender, um, that they will complement one another, men as leader, women as follower, you know, and then therefore, if you don't fit into those stereotypes, right, you're sort of thought of as not a real whatever it is. So, um, so if you're a man who's not the leader in your home, you know, uh, a man who is not super masculine, who, you know, is not, uh, not always, um, you know, the making the decisions doesn't wear the quote unquote pants in the family, you're thought of as not a real man, mm. you know? Yeah. And that's true society wide. Right. And, um, and, you know, if you're a woman who is leading to quote unquote too much or who is too sexual in other people's eyes or whatever it is, you know, you're no longer thought of as a good woman. You're now thought of as, you know, insert one of any number of, um, of words, right? Jezebel. (laughs) Right. Yeah. yeah. Jezebel, harlot, you know, all those sexualized words, um, uh, you know, man-hating feminist, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you know, all these words that basically like strip somebody of their identity as a woman and turn them into a thing, right? One of these things that, um, that are negative, seen as very negative, um, you know, shrieking, 
um, you know, when people, when women complain, um, they're often described as shrieking, um, these words that you, that you hear that you would never hear a man described as, you know, a man, if he's complaining, it's like, he's standing up for justice, (laughs) you know, (laughs) whereas a woman, if she's complaining, she's being a, she's not, she's not being a good woman. Therefore she's shrieking, she's clawing, she's whatever it is, whatever words we're going to use to dehumanize her. Yeah. And it's So, so, I mean, it's so excruciating for people and I've seen it happen to women in my life and I read about it in your book like for me I would be in the Jezebel category because I'm always like so sexual and that's my thing but I know a lot of women who got married really young and they were in excruciating pain trying to submit and trying to fit into this role when they had opinions and and not even not to bulldoze anyone but just like women are human beings. We have good ideas too. And to not even be able to express that openly and, and again, having to compartmentalize and pretend to be someone you're not, or to even especially think that God doesn't accept you as you are, even though you innately feel that he made you to be outspoken or brash or loud or whatever you're accused of being. It's, it leads to more destruction for the spirit. Absolutely. Yeah. And for a long time, you know, I really felt like I was alone in all of this. Me and, too. <laughs> oh, gosh, I Me know, too. right? And, mm-hmm. and because we're not really supposed to be talking about it because it's shameful. It's shameful to be, um, it's shameful to not be what you are, quote unquote, supposed to be. And so we end up blaming ourselves. Oh, I'm not what I'm supposed to be because there's something wrong with me. It's my sin. It's my brokenness. It's my problem. You know, whereas in reality, it's the expectations of others that are, that are, you know, deeply problematic, you know, and the teachings that teach us that we're quote unquote supposed to be, you know, one thing when we're actually incredibly diverse, we're all different. Yeah. And that's wonderful and beautiful. And it really wasn't until I started to, um, to talk to my girlfriends who I grew up with in the church and to tell them about my sexual shame and fear and anxiety and um, and to ask them if they were experiencing similar things. And then, of course, you know, sitting with my jaw dropped to the floor as they told me very similar stories um, that I started to realize that I wasn't the problem, that the problem was something that was taught to us because so many of us were struggling with these things. And the part that really blew me away was that, you know, people had made very different life choices. You know, some Some of the folks I spoke with, you know, were evangelicals and some had left the church. Some were married and had um, some of those married people had waited to have sex until marriage, had waited even to have their first kiss until they were married. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas others had had sex before marriage. Um, Some were, you know, virgins who, uh, you know, were were just not moving past the handholding or the kissing stage. And some were you know, unmarried and having sex and feeling fine about that. And yet people in all of these categories were experiencing the same thing. So I was experiencing this shame and fear and anxiety that um, was tied to so much of what we learned about ourselves as sexual creatures. And that really made me realize, okay, it's not that I did everything wrong and that I'm not meeting your expectations and that's why I'm hurting you know, it, it, it's really the expectations themselves are, are, um, unreal, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're, they, they work for a few people. A few people might actually be able to meet these expectations because they naturally are that way. But, you know, the majority of us are, are, you know, different in all these other ways that make trying to be one single thing. Um, you know, you're lucky, I think, if you, (laughs) if you naturally align with that one single thing you're supposed to be when the majority of us, you know, just are what we are. (laughs) And it doesn't look that way for all of us. I mean, that is a really, really wild revelation to understand that because I think I experience the same thing when I talk to people, there are 20 different journeys, and then they all led to the same result, which I mean, you talk about really extreme things, um, panic attacks, girls cutting themselves. Um, you also told of a story about a girl fearing that she was being followed, like when she was having a sexual relationship and that 
her, you know, pastors would find her and she wasn't even having a sexual relationship. She was, she, she had a, she had a fiance Mm -hmm. who she had, who she had kissed. Wow. And that's all. And yet, and yet the terror, the terror of being found out as being sexual at all. Um, and the fear that people would assume now, and this is the important part, the fear that people would assume that they were doing more than they actually were. That's what created the, the feeling of her being yeah. followed and the fear of her being followed. You brought up a repressed memory for me when I read that because I, I was saving myself for marriage and I lasted till 22, which <laughs> I even give myself a pat on the back for that because I was just so ready, so young. Um, but when I finally was having sex, I was engaged because I got married out of guilt. It was the first person I slept with and I felt so horrible for having had sex with him that I forced us into this marriage. But in the interim of, you know, our engagement and everything, we were having sex. Obviously I was feeling horrible and ashamed every single time. And one time I got a phone call on my cell and it was probably like, whatever, a teenager doing a prank call and they were playing porn. Like I heard people having sex like on a video or something. Hmm. And my immediate thought was, oh my God, someone recorded me having sex from church. They found out they're letting me know like this huge conspiracy theory. And I started crying on the phone and I was crying and yelling like, who is this? Which I'm sure was very jarring for whoever was probably playing this like moderately innocent prank on a random number but it does get ingrained so deeply you have you know they talk about accountability all the time but that accountability turns into you truly believing that all eyes are on you and that every action that you take can be held to this you know impossible standard of perfection yeah and I'm glad you brought up that word accountability because that that is something that I, I'm glad you brought it back. I didn't write about it in the book, um, but I thought about writing about it. You know, there's, it is a culture where you're taught to watch each other. You're yeah. taught to be quote unquote accountable to each other, which often results in just judging each other, just trying to catch each other doing something wrong and judging each other for it and exposing when you do find something wrong, exposing it to other people who will judge it as well. And it's yeah. talked about as being a really healthy and helpful way of, of, of protecting one another from ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in some cases, perhaps it is. You know, if you are cheating on your partner um, and someone finds out, you know, it's probably a good idea for them to pull you aside and be like, hey, let's have a conversation about this. Do you need someone to talk with about this? Is this, is this how you want to, you know, is this a choice that you really want to be making, you know? There are moments where, you know, where I think we can be truly accountable to one another in healthy and helpful ways. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, it is taken to such an extreme that it just becomes an excuse for us to, um, to yeah. judge one another. <laughs> and, Righteous uh, judgment, as yes, they call it. Yeah. Yes. And, and that creates a tremendous amount of anxiety because you never quite know when you are being um, crazy, you know, quote unquote, that, that's a word that I used a lot because, you know, because of course nobody is, you know, um, following you when you go out on your date or whatever it is. That's not my experience, but one of my interviewees experience, but, um, you know, and when you're actually being totally reasonable because perhaps someone is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah. so, it's, it's crazy making a little bit. It makes you feel crazy. Although in actuality, yeah. it's actually an entirely reasonable response to, to the scenario. Well, yeah. And to your point, that is why um, this quote accountability is so, it, it is so harmful to the psyche because for me, I was so innocent for so long And I really, it took me a long time to um, develop. So I wasn't seeing my body as a sexual object at all. I wasn't connecting those dots. And I remember I was at a football game and I was having a great time and the cute boys at church were playing football and I wasn't thinking of anything. And my pastor came up to me and she pulled me like really hard and was like, I can see your boobs, and was really mad because I guess, you know, my top had slipped down and she could see my chest. 
And I wasn't wearing a bra because I just hadn't even gone there yet in my head, you know? And, um, and as soon as you get pulled aside, like when you're mm. genuinely being innocent, when you're genuinely right, right. not out for something wrong and someone is like, just, you know, when you were being fully innocent and not thinking about sex, you were still messing up. You know, right, 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 right. And that's, I think, what leads to like you being terrified that, oh my God, I don't even know when I'm doing Who knows when I could be messing up? I could be messing (laughs) up at any moment. Yes, Uh yes, yes. Yeah. You really, I think you really like, you know, that's so important. It is. And and so many of the times that I was pulled aside, you know, I would say all of the times that I was pulled aside, I was just, I wasn't trying to do anything. I was really just like living my life. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and it's jarring when it happens and people are, people accuse you of, um, of, of being a sexual threat, you know, and you're like, Oh my God, uh, I'm, I'm just sitting here. I'm just sitting here. I had no idea that, that I was being perceived this way in a way that then makes you sort of wonder all the time how you're being perceived. Of course, yeah. this is, of course, this is true in society as well, though. Well, yeah, that's true. Well, but outside of society, I think it's important to address that it's not, it's not just the people that made us feel like this was so important. Our love for God was so pure and so real that when people are telling you you're displeasing God, that adds a whole other element. Uh Um, Like what was your, like, I'm, I'm assuming you were also, you're not just trying to honor people in this, you were trying to honor God in what you were doing. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. being a good Christian was my whole world. You know, I mm-hmm. wanted, I wanted to, all the things that I was being told I had to do, I wanted to do. I wanted to protect men and boys from their sexual thoughts and feelings so they could be close to God. I wanted to honor God in my thought life and my um, choices so that I could be close to God. I wanted to protect this community so that we could be a, a holy community. And, and I wanted to be part of that holy community because, um, because that was everything to me. And, you know, and I will say, you know, that it still is, God still is everything to me, you know, my relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah. It's still as, it's still as important as it ever has been, but I no longer see it as my responsibility to um, to be what certain people think I need to be, to to like protect um, to protect us and keep us in the good favor of God. And I instead, you know, have come to really feel the love of God in every moment and to feel God's um, uh, presence and and gentleness and kindness and love toward me, um, you know, sort of regardless of whether I am, you know, whether my shirt has slipped down while watching a football game or not, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, um, and, and have come to identify that, that so much of that is actually the teachings of people. It's actually mm-hmm. just ma- like man-made, woman-made, person-made stuff that, um, that creates a tremendous amount of anxiety that ultimately had me looking inward and trying to fix myself and be perfect instead of looking outward and trying to do the real work that I think God was calling me to do even then, which I did some of, but I could have been doing so much more, which is not focusing on me and trying to be, you know, pure and perfect and all of these things, but focusing on others and how I can serve them more. And how I can help uh, create more justice in the world so that um, there's less uh, divisions in our society. How I can help people who are unseen, um, people who are living in poverty right next door. You know, all those things that are truly God's work. Um, You know, my priorities were all off. I did do those things. And those were the things that I knew in my gut really mattered. But I wasn't being told to do those things nearly as much as I was being told to focus all my energy inward and try to make myself perfect, um, which I think, uh, I think is, um, you know, a skewed priority. Yeah. I mean, I keep saying there's like six to eight verses on the Bible about sexual immorality and the translation there is even all muddied and is very, you know, difficult to 
come to a clear conclusion on, but there are 90 verses on being fearless and taking care of the poor is the most elevated human action that's presented in the Bible. So that's exactly what it is. I, why do you think, or how do you think the church has gotten in this mess of this sexual obsession? It's yeah, it's, I've been trying to figure out the why for a really long time. And I don't know that I have an answer to the why. Mm. Um, what I do know is that um, the consequence of the what. I know that by, by creating this obsession with sexuality, that, um, that people live, uh, live in their most intimate lives um, in a way that is connected to and controlled by this institution. Yeah. And that's a deep, deep amount of control to have over somebody's life. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that is the intention. I mean, I'm curious to hear if you have thoughts on why this happened, like why we have such an obsession on this. I mean, certainly we can go back to Aristotle and Plato and the separation, the mind-body separation. I think this has a much longer story than evangelicalism. Right. Um, but, you know, but, but why we have gotten so hyper-focused on this one thing, um, you know, in this particular community, it, I just, I wish I could understand it better. I wish yeah. I could understand it. Do you, what are your thoughts? Well, I recently referred to the obsession with sexuality as an idol that we've created. I think that, I think that the benefit of controlling people's sexuality or controlling your own sexuality is that it's very, very tangible. Like when I was a virgin, I knew I was a good girl. You know, I was like, well, I'm definitely a Christian. It's very clear because I don't know. It just, it was easy to see. But then even when I was married and I was having sex, I completely lost sense of my identity as a Christian. And I think, you know, gender roles are a huge part of it. A lot of things in churches have been created with so much love. And that's the thing too, like, the pastors that taught me about purity and even our parents putting us in those spaces. Like I was just thinking yesterday about how when I have children, I would most, I would be most wary of putting them in a youth group. I would need to sit in to a session like for 12 <laughs> sessions before I was like, okay, I agree with what you guys are telling my child because it is such a dangerous place just made with the best intention. They wanted to protect us from disease and from pregnancy. And it's still so prevalent in our culture. You have Mike Pence shutting down Planned Parenthoods and people still advocating for abstinence only because they think it's gonna protect us. But I don't know. I don't know why specifically the church has taken that on as our main thing. Um, I, but I, It's very compelling, this idol, this idol language that you're talking about. I mean, yeah, that's that's really the only that's the closest I could come that that it's just tangible. It's just like, yes, this is something I can depend on. But I mean, I'd love to get back to a lot of the negative results this has had, because one of the prevalent thing that's happened to women that I know and that you've talked to that got married was that if there were any sexual issues to arise in their marriage after, by the way, having no comprehensive sexual education, sometimes no foreplay, like you said, kissing, you know, on the altar and then expected to just get naked and be fully comfortable with someone that is a stranger to your body. Um, and then they go in for counseling, religious counseling, and the woman is told, Often, it's your fault. Were you masturbating before you got married? Were you being overly sexual? Did you guys have sex with other people before? And then that becomes the conclusion of why you guys are having problems now, not the lack of sex education and lack of comfortability with your body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a reshaming. You know, it's, um, there's, this, uh, there's this myth um, that if you are totally non-sexual before marriage, that you will suddenly become hyper-sexual after marriage and will have a blissful, perfect sexual life. Mm -hmm. And um, it is unfortunately 
Um, it is unfortunately uh, not something that I have heard from very many people. Um, you know, unfortunately, what I mostly hear from people is that if you do a really good job of shutting down your sexuality before marriage, you know, it, it remains shut down. Um, you know, once you get married, there's no magic, um, magic spell that's cast, you know, that makes you suddenly be able to access something that you have gotten really good at shutting down. So, so it, ultimately people are sort of, um, uh, having to learn about sexuality for the first time in their marriage bed, which can take a really long time. Um, you know, particularly if you, if you don't have information and if you, um, you know, have, have, have taken in a lot of shame, which, um, which is really what this teaching, um, is very good at doing. And the good thing is, I think, is that increasingly people are starting to tell these stories about struggling with sex in their marriage buds. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, I think that we're starting to, to see, to see how common that is. And, um, and I'm hoping that that is going to create less of a reliance on, well, this is just the way things are. So if it didn't work for you, you are doing something wrong or you did something wrong and more of a, a recognition of, um, well, we taught you some things (laughs) that need to be unlearned. And, and this is sort of connected to my whole thing about, you know, the, really the only way that we can heal from these things is if we can tell our true stories, because we can only identify what's a myth um, if, we, if we have enough people who are telling their truth, telling the reality of their lives um, in a way that makes it clear that, um, that things are mythical, right? You know, yeah. I mean, so long as, so long as people don't tell their truths, we can all continue to believe that if you're utterly non-sexual before marriage, you'll have a blissful, yeah. perfect sexual life upon, you know, starting on your wedding night. Um, and the only way that we can identify um, that you're not broken um, if you don't have that experience is if we have enough people talking about their realities in a way that makes us go, oh, actually, it's entirely normal to not have that smooth transition. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so happy you're saying that because I've, I've been writing, you know, for like 20 years now and there was no greater freedom just to encourage anyone listening. Like the moment you step out and say your truth, if you're the first one and you're like the brave one to step out, like, for example, when I started God is gray, I really, I, I had this vision from God where I felt like I was stepping out into this open field where no one else was standing. And I was like, I'm going to say these things. Like, I don't think being gay is a sin. and I don't think feminism is a sin and you're allowed to masturbate and these sorts of things. But I really had a strong sense that when I stepped out into that field, I would look and in the distance, I would wave and see someone out there starting to tell their truth. And then someone else in the distance starting to tell a similar truth. And Linda, you're one of the first ones that I stepped out into the field and I saw you and waved. And I was like, oh, my Mm. God, there's Linda K. Klein out there with me. (laughs) And it's amazing because, like, I didn't know you'd be out there with me. I thought Mm. I was alone saying these things but I really did feel like God was encouraging me if you say these things I promise you I will I will show you other people standing out in that field I'm at a point now where I just want everyone in my audience everyone listening to really be brave and bold and know that the moment you step out there me and Linda are out there with you and there's gonna be an army of other people out there standing with us ready to say these things and ready to like heal and I, I it's like major because I wrote down here you brought up Hebb's axiom um, which is the concept that a neural connection in your brain is made when you're like having associations so we have so much association in evangelical culture between shame and sexuality um, and there's a woman in your book named Katie that said I feel more comfortable with guilt than with pleasure or happiness. So those two statements just remind me that there's actually like work we have to do to unlearn these things and to 
break those neural connections between sexuality and shame. Mm, yes. And, and I think that the only way that we do the work is by, is by coming out of isolation. So, yes, exactly. you know, so I started this organization called Break Free Together um, and Break Free Together is um, kind of a, a play on the title of the book. So the book is pure. And then the subtitle is Inside the Evangelical Movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. Mm-hmm. But the organization is break free together because, you know, really the way that I broke free was by spending 12 years in this process of story exchange with people where I told my story over and over. And then I listened to my story be told back to me in the stories of others, you know, though the details of their lives were different the core experiences, the core feelings were often the same. And this story exchange experience, you know, really is what allowed for my healing. And my interviewees, you know, told me that, you know, many of them told me that it allowed for their healing as well. I'm sure. Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. realizing that you're not alone, stepping out into the wilderness and finding someone else out there with you, and then finding another and another and another and another. And so, so I definitely with, um, with this, encourage people to though find the place that is the right, um, the right way to start to come into voice and come into community for you. So some of us, I think, in the early stages of talking about this, really just need to find one person that you can tell your truth to. And I'm not talking about somebody who you know is going to try to fix you, yeah, or who you know is going to judge you, mm-hmm. or or um, tell you that you did something wrong and that's why you're experiencing it. And you know who those people are. So (laughs) I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about the person who you know is just going to listen to you and is just going to hear you, really hear you. So maybe it's just one person. Maybe it's joining an online community, um, you know, that you might have have heard about. Um, maybe it's, maybe it's about, um, I have a a opportunity where people can send in a postcard to me, um, that they can, you can go to breakfreetogether.org and you can find a PO box and send in a postcard with your story. So it's entirely anonymous. You don't have to sign the postcard. And then I can post it on our break free together Instagram so that your story can be with other people's stories and you don't even have to be associated with it, you know? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Or maybe Mm -hmm. you're ready to tell your story more boldly, you know, the way that you are and, and starting a, a podcast and having more visible conversations, you know, so wherever you are in, in this place, I, you know, it's, the invitation is to come into community and to tell your truth at the place that feels um, best for you where you are right now. Just to conclude, you made me cry at one part where uh, I can't find its reference right now, but you basically talked about the first time that you had a sexual experience and your partner said, is there someone else in the room? And you said yes, because you felt like God's presence was in the room. And for me, overcoming my sexual shame and trying to stop compartmentalizing places of myself, I've noticed in my sex life, I've always asked God to wait outside the door. It's like, I know he loves me. I've come to a place in my life where I don't believe I'm sinning and I know what I'm doing and I'm making autonomous choices that are healthy, that are honoring my body. And I still can't seem to let him into that space. So like as a Christian woman, as someone that honors God, like how did you first come to that moment where you realized you'd released the shame and that you were allowing God into that space? Hmm. Oh, it's a great question. I, to try to answer it, I'm going to try to talk about the Trinity. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Go for it. So, so someone once pointed, um, something beautiful out to me. This was a woman named Pat DeYoung, um, who is a minister. And she said to me, you know, the Trinity is, is powerful in its design. You have God, who is the creator, a creative force, creativity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have the Holy Spirit, which is the sort of ethereal, spiritual, unknown, unknowable, you know, the thing that speaks to you in your gut and you just know, 
um, but you can't touch or feel. Um, and then you have the person of Jesus that is a physical, earthly body form. And she said, you know, when I think about the Trinity, I think about these three parts creating the person of God, right? It is the creative, the part that creates that is divinely, like there's just this incredible thing that, that we can create even as humans, right? This, the creator, um, the unknowable, the spiritual, right? And, mm -hmm. and the physical. And, and we forget sometimes, I think, as Christians, that, that we enter into um, this religion through the earthly body of Jesus, right? Yeah. Um, we talk so much about Jesus and we forget so much about, you know, this is an earthly form of God, right? Purposefully embodied, purposefully in body, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so often when we think of God, we forget that. We think of the we think of the creative and we think of the untouchable and, you know, uh, spiritual, but we forget that God is, God, God is, um, in body form as well within this Trinity structure. And we're taught to demonize our flesh too. We always talk about the flesh. Don't trust the flesh. And exactly. I, yeah. But God came in the flesh. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that is, mm -hmm. that is like a third of the, a third of their, our, our image of God. Right. Right. Um, so, so I think that there's something that, um, that I have been able to over the years reclaim, um, the body as part of, uh, the, as not something evil that God made by mistake, um, and that we need to conquer and that our spiritual selves are somehow better and must, you know, control the body, right? On the mm -hmm. contrary, my body sometimes is speaking to me, um, and it is the voice of God. You know, mm -hmm. when I when I am um, when I am really stressed out, <laughs> and uh, and my body breaks down, though my mind says, "No, body, don't break down. You have a million more things to do." You know, it's mm -hmm. my body. It's my body that's telling me, "Well, you might you might not like it, but actually, you need to rest." And you need to take time to step away and you need to take time to pray. And by the way, you're really stressed about something that you haven't dealt with properly. So deal with that. Otherwise, I'm going to keep talking to you. You know, I'm going to keep talking to you through this stomach ache, through this headache, through this, um, you know, through this, um, in, I would say even my Crohn's disease in some ways was my body talking to me. Right. Right. So, so anyway, so, so I think there's something about reclaiming the body as part of our divinity, um, uh, you know, as part of our relationship to divinity, right? Um, and, and, and understanding that if God is within us, that, that our body, you know, can be part of that interplay with God, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so for me, you know, having God in the room <laughs> with my body just at a certain point wasn't even a question, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it just, it just was, it just was, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that, I don't know that, um, I, I don't know when it happened or how it happened, but I just stopped, um, seeing it all as divided and mm. I still struggle with it to a certain extent, to be sure. You know, I, I still grew up within a culture that taught me that my mind and my spirit was better than my body. Um, yeah. you know. At, at, you know, and that's the nice way to put it. The bad way to put it is that your body is evil and sinful and earthly. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, so it's, it's still not perfect, but I think by the time I ended up, you know, having, um, that, that sexual experience that you refer to, um, you know, I, I just had made peace with the, uh, with the realization that sexuality and spirituality were not mutually exclusive. And, um, oh, I say that all the time. That's my line. I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yes. It's yeah. so true. It, but it's not in practice in my life yet. So I thank mm. you so much for that insight. Um, I can't thank you enough for re uh, writing this book. I'm honestly so incredibly grateful for the work and the heart you've put into it. And 
I'm so excited to know that women are going to heal from it and that my friends are reading it. I encourage all of you guys, please pick up a copy of this book. It's Linda K. Klein's Pure. And, um, and how would they touch base with that Instagram, like to being able to submit their stories? Yeah, thank you. Um, so Break Free Together is the name of the organization. So you can go to breakfreetogether.org. Um, and it, it will um, bring you to a sort of explanation of different things. Um, or if you want to start reading people's stories straight away, just going straight to Instagram, you can follow Break Free Together on Instagram and you can see some of the postcards that have been sent in already. Amazing. Thank you so much, Linda. You are amazing. I'm oh. really grateful. Well, I, you know, this only happens, this only happens in numbers, right? You know, exactly. it only mm -hmm. happens through conversations between, between, uh, you know, folks who are doing this sometimes scary, you know, though at the same time, exhilarating <laughs> mm -hmm. work of, of vulnerably telling our truth. So thank you for, thank you for doing it with me. Thank you for being the, another voice in the wilderness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we love you guys. This is an adventure too. I hope this doesn't sound like a burden. I find untethering myself from these like toxic messages has actually been fun because the Holy Spirit is gentle and God loves you and goes easy on you and he goes at your pace. So just be encouraged that you can heal by the book. Come on this journey with us. I love you guys. <laughs>